Good morning. This is a unique Sunday right now, uh, not just in the United States, the city of Cincinnati, in the United States, uh, or even in the world. There is a lot of, of uncertainty and fear and anxiety, and I think it's good this morning to remember, uh, as, as we talked about a couple months ago with, with John, we studied Lamentations, what the writer of Lamentations said is this, I recall to mind, therefore I have hope through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. Just, rem- just remembering that God, our Father, uh, our Savior, is in control. Uh, his plan is being worked and he loves us with a perfect love. And I think it's good to remember that uh, this morning and these in these these times of uncertainty. I'd like to open this morning with a with a quote from Gandhi of all people. And the uh, the quote is this, a small body of determined spirits fired by an unquenchable faith in their mission can alter the course of history. And I think that as we study the book of Acts, that is a, a good description of the early church and the people of the early church who began uh, the early church through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. You had a small body of determined believers, uh, the apostles, uh, and then the, the early church in Jerusalem, who were fired by an unquenchable faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and the Great Commission, as they were given, uh, was their mission, and they did truly alter the course of history. The Church of Jesus Christ spread throughout Judea and then into uh, the Gentile lands uh, through East Asia or Asia Minor and uh, Greece and, and Rome and North Africa. And, and we are benefactors today of their work and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ through them. So we praise God for that. Now, I did have some, some interactive portions of uh, the message. I, I was going to open up the question here, so I'm going to open up the question. If you find yourself listening to this message at home, feel free to raise your hand and answer to those questions. Well, the first one is, here, who here loves history? It looks like everybody here, which is good. Uh, I, I'm raising my hand as a history major in, in college. I at least had to like history, uh, if not love it. And I've always loved history, and I think part of that has to do with the fact that I love to read. And I love a good story. Uh, but... Converse, that question would be, who here doesn't? Now, I didn't pull any hard data. I didn't pull any studies. But I would venture a guess that if you went and polled uh, a high school and asked a lot of the students there, what's your least favorite subject? A good number of them would probably list history. And I can understand that uh, conceptually. I did have one semester. I was a sophomore in high school. And uh, the, the teacher there was fresh out of college and just apparently wasn't ready for the rigors of teaching a bunch of high school, rowdy high school students. And I uh, had a mental breakdown about a third of the way into the year, and just, that was it. He quit. So the, uh, the lady who filled in, uh, this wasn't her subject she was supposed to teach, so, so I can understand why she went this, this route. We had, a, if you remember, the old overhead projectors that had the light pushed behind, and, and, and you got the projector behind you, and you just ride on acetate. So the... The whole, pretty much the rest of the, the year, we would sit in class and she would just copy her notes onto acetate, line for line, like an outline like I got in front of me today. And we were expected to copy it word for word. And all the source material, all the tests, everything was pulled out of that. 
that source material. And she didn't really teach that, that material. Uh, or she talked about it, but through her notes. It was just, it was very boring. It was all about the, the dates and the people and, and the events. And there was really no true teaching of the, of the material. So I can understand uh, why somebody doesn't, doesn't necessarily like history. Uh, sometimes that is the way it is. But why do we study history? So Marcus Garvey said this, a man named Marcus Garvey said this, a people without the knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And George Orwell, who wrote the book 1984, that's one probably is most well-known for, wrote, uh, said this, the most effective way to destroy people is to deny and obliterate their own understanding of their history. And we all have uh, a history. We have our individual history. Uh, Sean Fullen has a history, the uh, life I've lived thus far. That's, that's my own personal history. And then you have a family history. Uh, the Fullens, uh, the only reason I bring the Fullens up is because my grandpa Fullen uh, traced the Fullens back to the 1600s. That's the only reason I know that uh, I have a great, great, great relative, uh, Patrick Fullen, who fought for the British in the War of 1812. And uh, so I have the Fullen family history, and I have the Ellison family history on my dad's mom's side. I have the Evers history on my mom's dad's side, and on my mom's mom's side, I have Heinz history. So we have a history there with our family. And then you take it a little bit further, where we live where you grew up, there's a history there, and I think it's good to, to understand and know that history because it does inform you or what uh, things about you, why you are the way you are often. And then world history. So history of America, we only go back about 250 years, our, our true history. You get into world history, it's a lot longer. And it's, it's, uh, it's important. And every time we went somewhere in the military, I was an intel officer, and one of my responsibilities when we would go to a, a country like Afghanistan or Kosovo, uh, we had to prepare and give a, a, a briefing, a comprehensive briefing on the country. And a big part of that was the history briefing. So, for instance, you go to Afghanistan, why is it important to know about Alexander the Great? Well, in Afghanistan, there are people there today that can trace their roots and their lineage all the way back to Alexander the Great, and it informs their culture. There is an entire race of people in Afghanistan, an entire tribe, that can trace their roots back to Genghis Khan and the Mongol invasion of Afghanistan. And they, they, their culture has ties to that. But it, if you go into a country that you're not familiar with, understanding the history of that region will help you understand or at least realize what informs their traditions and the way they are, the reason they are the way they are. And it's important to them, very important. With the Kosovo and the Serbians there, talk about a... a a battle that happened in 1389 like it happened yesterday, the Battle of Kosovo, uh, where Serbians and Bosnians stopped the Turkish invasion uh, of southern Europe as they were heading towards Austria. And they lost that battle in 1389, but they did effectively stop the encroachment of, of the Turkish Ottoman Empire into Europe. And that is important to, to them. The only reason I bring all this up and I talk about this is because it, what's really struck me as I studied this chapter in Acts and also, I should say, during this study of Acts in general, this is the history of the church. This is the origins, the early church and the spread of the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles, where the Gentiles were incorporated into the family of God. And I think it's important to remember that this is our history. This is the early church. This is our churches, our even our local bodies. Uh, history there. It connects us to our roots, and it's good to understand and study 
the early church. I think Acts is kind of an interesting book of the Bible. You know, you study the Gospels because this is it's a narrative of the time of the Lord Jesus Christ here on earth, and he is our Lord and Savior, so we want to hear directly from our Lord and Savior. And you have the epistles written by Paul, Peter, James, John, Jude, and whoever wrote Hebrews. And there's a lot of good, solid doctrine to be pulled from the epistles. And so we read that for, for that reason. Acts is kind of an interesting one in that it is a history book. And I think sometimes that's the reason it, it's, it's often overlooked, or, or at least not delved into, because, because it is, it's just a history book. But it's an important history book to study as the church, because, again, this is our history. It connects us to our roots. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to come this morning and to open your word and to study it. Uh, we pray for uh, this body of believers, this local body of believers here, uh, those who are not here this morning. I pray that you would just be with them, help uh, calm any anxieties or fears in this time, Lord, and help them to turn to you. Lord, we know that uh, your plan is being worked, and uh, we thank you so much for, for uh, your love, your grace, your mercy. Um, and we thank you for your word and, the, again, the chance to study it this morning. We pray that you, you would bless this time, bless me, bless the, uh, the people who will hear this message, Lord. And we pray that you would open our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one of the interesting things about not necessarily having a backstop is I don't think I really have to stay within the 45 minutes, do I? <laughs> Just kidding. I probably will. So Acts chapter 12. Uh, Acts chapter 12. We find ourselves back in the church in Jerusalem. If you want to turn to Acts chapter 12, we'll be pulling from the material here. But we're back in the church in Jerusalem, and, and prior to this, we've, we've primarily stayed in Judea, but, but you've had travel outside of Jerusalem itself, Joppa, Lydda, uh, Caesarea, Antioch even. Uh, but you generally speaking, stayed in the area of modern-day Israel and Lebanon, and the church hasn't exploded yet. I should say, and the focus of that, again, we find ourselves back in, in Jerusalem. Now, this story, it, it's kind of an interesting one in the sense that it almost seems like it's a standalone one. It, if it was removed from the, the narrative or the story, it, it wouldn't necessarily take away from, from the overarching story of the, of the, of the uh, book of Acts. But it's important. I, I would argue it's, it's an important one, uh, even if it doesn't necessarily seem like it. It's, it's also a transitional in nature chapter primarily been in the region of modern-day Judea and Lebanon, after this you're going to start to see an explosion and expansion of the early church outside of Judea and into Asia Minor, into Greece, into Rome. Uh, and that's where the narrative is going to go from kind of from an insular local Judean assembly that to the explosion of, uh, uh, of the gospel into Gentile lands. And also you see, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, towards the tail end of this message, but you'll see a transition really between Peter being the, the Peter and the apostles kind of having the preeminence or the, the, the front stage, center stage of the story uh, to Paul now taking pretty much center stage at this point. So you, you, Peter takes a background role after this. Uh, and so does the church in Jerusalem. But it begins uh, with persecution, Acts chapter 12, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Another translation I read said to cruelly persecute, cruelly persecute the church. So it begins with persecution. And I think it's important to recall, uh, we've talked about this in past messages, that, that uh, persecu- persecution was used by the Lord to spread 
the gospel, spread the church. Uh, the, the, the church of God can be scattered, uh, but not silenced, as, as uh, brothers before me have said. Uh, but the Lord does use and did use in, uh, in this uh, book, as we see as we read through the history book, persecution to spread the gospel outside of Jerusalem. And it was Herod that did that. Now, it's interesting to, to study Herod, who was Herod. This is Herod Agrippa I. Uh, and we know, we know Herod Antipas and, and Herod the Great uh, from, from the, the Gospels, Herod the Great being the Herod that was in charge at the time that Jesus was born. And he had four sons that, that uh, we know of, and this is my limited study. I'm sure he probably had more children, but three are named. In the Gospels, those three are Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, and Herod Philip. And he had a fourth son, Aristobulus, who's, who was the father of uh, Herod Agrippa, who we see here in chapter 12, Acts chapter 12, and also Herodias. Uh, so Herodias, you'll remember, was married to one of her uncles, Philip, left him and married Herod Antipas, had a daughter who's not named in the Gospels, but if you pull from other historical sources, we, uh, we get the name Salome. And all three, Herod Antipas, Herodias, and Salome, were involved in the execution of John the Baptist. And then Herod Agrippa I, three children again who were named, and we'll see them later in Acts, in chapters 24 and 25, Herod Agrippa II, Bernice, his sister he was married to, and then Drusilla, who was married to, uh, I think it was Felix. But we'll, we'll read about them later. So <clears throat> just kind of give you a context of who Herod is and how he fits into the, the whole narrative of, of, of Jesus' life in the early church. But he uh, harassed, cruelly persecuted the church. And then in verse 2, Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter. He, he realized, and it doesn't say here in the scriptures, that, that he did this at the behest of originally, the behest of the, the religious establishment at the time. But he realized that this incurred favor with the Jewish religious establishment. And I think that that actually was important to anybody who wanted to be in charge or rule the Jewish people. If you go back in history, uh, the time of Moses when the law was given, uh, in many respects, if you were to, to put a stamp of what type of, of leadership the, the Jewish people had, it was an autocracy in many respects with Moses as the head. But there was definitely, with the establishment of the, of the priesthood, a strong theocratic element to the, to the leadership of the Jews at the time. And when Saul was crowned king, you transitioned into a monarchy, but you still have a very strong underpinning of a theocratic leadership role in, in, the, in the Jewish faith. And as they were dispersed, and, and those that remained at the time when the, the Romans conquered uh, the Israelite nation, even the Romans knew that they had, they had difficulty with the Jews. And I think one of the ways to incur goodwill to the Jews was to, to pander to or to, to please this theocracy, uh, this underpinning of theocracy in the Jewish faith. So Herod saw that this pleased these people, and that was a good thing to be a ruler of the Jewish people. They had a, a lot of authority, religious authority, and, uh, and so to please them, that was good. And, and it's, it's important to remember, too, that these, these people, the, the, the Jews, especially the, the Jewish religious establishment, were, were responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. That was God's plan, but they were responsible for that. And they wanted to stamp out the church. They thought they won when Jesus was killed. This just won't go away. Now you've got the disciples who are not giving this up, and they're spreading the gospel, even under persecution, which I think is 
that, that probably should be an indicator that if you're willing to die for something, if you believe in it that strongly, there's, there's something to this. Uh, and I think that, that uh, it probably frightened the Jewish establishment, religious establishment, that these people, they weren't giving it up once I'm persecuting them. And also you have to remember uh, the Jewish religious establishment would have, would have recalled or seen the fact that the, whole, the temple veil, the Holy of Holies to the Holy of Holies, was rent from top to bottom. There's really not a way to explain that. And so I'd imagine there's even division among, among them, but they're doubling down on the fact that their status quo is being threatened. And so they're happy when the church is persecuted. They're happy when James is killed. And James was the brother of John, uh, the son of Zebedee, and, and one of the three, I don't want to call them favored, but favored disciples. He was often separated from the other, the other 12 along with his brother John and with Peter. If you look at uh, the Mount of Transfiguration, when the Lord brought these three with him uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, they, they were taken away from the rest of the disciples, and then Jesus separated himself from them, but they were separate. It probably was a mainstay of, of the early church. He's not talked about as much as Peter was, but, but a leader of, of the church in Jerusalem, he's an apostle, people would have come to him and asked what it was like to, to sit under the teaching of Jesus, and what did Jesus say in this instance? So a very important figure, and this would have been a shock to the early church in Jerusalem. It doesn't say the timeline, but I'd imagine the way that they worded it, it happened rather quickly. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Probably grabbed him in a public place, brought him before a quick trial, and took him out and beheaded him. And they had an important figure in their early church killed, taken from the board, pretty quickly. And I think... If you want to put it in modern modern terms, just to maybe try and put it into perspective, just try and consider this: someone that we would consider a, a big figure in the in the, the American Christian Church, like someone like David Jeremiah or John MacArthur. If the, what if they were suddenly taken and killed? That'd be a shock, I think, to to the church uh, in America. We just wouldn't be expecting it, um, and, and I think. Probably not necessarily as shocking to them. I mean, they did expect persecution. They were get, they were told to expect persecution. They had been persecuted previous to this. Stephen was stoned, Acts chapter seven, Acts chapter five. Uh, many of the Christians in Jerusalem were imprisoned. Um, but you have one of the favored favored apostles of Jesus Christ who is now gone. And I think that uh, asking the question why James. Why was, he, why was he killed this early in his ministry uh, isn't an unreasonable question to ask. And, and it's not one that I necessarily have, I think we have the answer to, aside from just saying that this is, it was his time. This was part of God's plan. And again, remind, being reminded that the disciples were promised persecution. And that persecution up to death. People hated them because they hated Jesus. So then Peter's taken. And again, talking about the fact that this is the Lord's plan, I think it's interesting that the Passover happened to be read around the time that he was taken. And so Herod was was inhibited, I guess you could say, by the Passover and couldn't legally, according to the law, or if he was going to please the Jews, kill him uh, in the time of Passover. But he did hold him. 
uh, you see in verse 4, so he had arrested, or so when he had arrested Peter, him being Peter, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So we know that he intended to bring him to trial and more than likely do the exact same thing to Peter that he did to James. So now we find ourselves, uh, we're going from persecution to prison, uh, which is a subset of persecution, admittedly, but I think it's important to separate, distinguish this portion from, <clears throat> from uh, James. Now, being in prison, obviously, Herod didn't want Peter to go anywhere. He detailed four squads of soldiers. So this is four squads of four soldiers apiece, more than likely rotating on a six-hour schedule. Uh, being directly responsible for Peter, just Peter, as a prisoner. Uh, that, that would, to me, illustrate Herod's seriousness in this. He, he does not want anybody to rescue him, and he doesn't want him just walking away. Not that you could necessarily walk out of a prison, but he was making sure. And two of them would have been inside the actual room with Peter himself, and then two of them would have been outside uh, the doors or the gates. So, so, verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison. But what's the saints' response to this? The church's response in Jerusalem. But constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. The church's response to this was prayer. Fervent, constant prayer. How often, brothers and sisters, is that? Our response. How often is that mine? Even in times of trouble, I think the the stereotype for prayer is that's the the only time we ever really pray is when we're in trouble. I know that's often when I that's the first. I wouldn't say the first thing I think of, but that is that's when I'm most likely to think, "Hey, I need to pray because I'm in trouble and I need help." But even in times of trouble, that's not necessarily the first thing I think of or the first thing I do. First thing I often do is try and get out of it myself, try and figure out a way out of it myself. And that's not what the saints did here. The saints prayed fervently for Peter. And they prayed corporately. I'd imagine that they prayed individually, but they did get together and they prayed corporately, fervently, constantly for Peter. It was one of the tenets of the early church. You go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayer. I've heard this said about uh, churches. You can often tell the, the, the strength of a local assembly by how well attended prayer meeting is. And the Bible doesn't say... Uh, the, the, with the early church, there is no formulaic way to gather. Like you have to get together on a Wednesday night. You have to get together at six o'clock. You have to. There's nothing like that. Um, and I also, I mean, I, I work nights, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I, I know that there is a lot of reasons why people can't necessarily make uh, prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. But I, I, I do think that you can definitely take something away from the uh, for to, for the strength of a local assembly, by how well attended that meeting is. I remember, you know, my parents are here this morning. I remember uh, going to prayer meeting. And we had a, when I was growing up especially, our church was much larger than it is t- today. Um, but the prayer meeting was much smaller. <laughs> um, and, and I had to 
I had to go. You know, being under authority of my parents, I had to go. And, and I'll be honest, I didn't always want to go. My dad can probably attest to that fact. I didn't always want to go to prayer meeting. Or if I did, we, we met at uh, uh, Abe Chaco, who was one of the, the elders of our church. We met at their home most of the time. Uh, if I did want to go, it was so I could go see my friend Jonathan, his son, who I, I went to high school with. And I'd rather spend time hanging out with him at his house than in the actual prayer meeting itself. Uh, but... The older I get, the more I appreciate the prayer meeting. Uh, getting together to pray. We're called to pray. We're told to pray. We're told to, uh, especially in times like this, in times of trouble, cast our cares, cast our worries uh, on the Lord Jesus. He wants us to come to him and pray. Request by pray, everything by prayer and supplication. Make your request known to God. We're told in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 to pray without ceasing. And so, again, this, this is a time of trouble. And that's when they went to the Lord. And I don't think that this is, they're limited by that. I think they, they prayed constantly. They prayed a lot. But I think that, that that's important to remember, to recall. In times of trouble, that should be the first thing we do. We should turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask for his assistance because we can't do it on our own. And I think, I don't, I don't want to limit us by times of trouble. I think we should always be talking to the Lord Jesus Christ um, because uh, we can. Now, I remember the, the song Stephen Curtis Chapman saying, Let us pray, let us pray everywhere and every way, every moment of the day. It is the right time. For the Father above, he is listening in love, and he wants to answer us. So let us pray. And one of the, one of the uh, I think it's the bridge, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence because it's open to us. We don't have to wait to once a year for the priest to go into the Holy of Holies. We can, we can pray right now. We can approach that throne of grace with confidence through, through Jesus Christ and his blood and talk to God and ask him, cast our cares upon him. That doesn't mean that, that he's going to always answer us the way we want him to. <laughs> Uh, I do want to, to add that note. Uh, you can't necessarily pray for a bicycle in expense. This isn't, this isn't um, God isn't Santa. He isn't Santa Claus. You don't ask him for what you want, and he's just going to give it to you. But I do think that if what you request A, is not necessarily selfish in nature, B, you're asking for assistance in your spiritual life to grow, you're asking for wisdom, the Lord will give it to you. He wants to give it to you. He wants to answer you. And we don't know, it doesn't record here what they prayed, <clears throat> what the early church prayed. Uh, this is one of the things when I was talking to my wife about this that she did mention. Because I, I initially would have said, the, the, what they're praying for is Peter to be released. But they might not have been. They might have been praying that Peter will suffer and die well. Because they knew that James was taken and he was killed. And they had no idea. Maybe Peter's going to die too. It's probably kind of a sure thing. Because he's in prison. So maybe they were praying that, that, that Peter would suffer and die well. They may have been praying that he was going to be released. And they may have been praying for the church as they lost these two important figures, two of the three uh, favorite apostles. They may have been praying all three. We don't know. But we know that they were fervently praying. And I think that's the important takeaway here. The other thing I wanted to focus on was Peter's response to this. When we find Peter here, this is towards the tail end of this time of Passover. 
And when Herod was about to bring him out, so we know that he's been there for more than one day, that night Peter was sleeping. Not about you, but if I was being kept in prison and knew that the next morning I was going to be dragged before the authorities and probably beheaded, I don't think I would be sleeping. But Peter was, and he wasn't sleeping lightly. We'll find out here in a a little bit. He was soundly asleep. And I'd imagine, again, the Bible doesn't record what Peter did while he was in prison, but I'd imagine that he prayed for strength, uh, that the Lord's will would be done, and his work would go forward. He may have witnessed to all of the guards that were in prison with him. We don't know what he did. Um, But when we find him here towards the tail end of this, this time in prison, he was sleeping peacefully, soundly, chained between two guards, knowing that the next morning he was probably going to be dragged before the authorities and killed. He was at peace with God's plan, whatever that was. I think that's something that we should strive for, brothers and sisters, is regardless of the difficulty we find ourselves in. And again, Peter, we're often not in the same situation Peter was, where we're, we know there's a really good chance that tomorrow we're going to die, or today we're going to die. But if we do find ourselves in that type of a situation, um, I think that is something to aspire for, too, that we trust the Lord so much and so strongly that, you know what, God, whatever comes, it's your will, I'm at peace with it. Or another way to look at this may have been uh, someone like Stonewall Jackson uh, had a quote that said, duty is ours, consequences are the Lord's. And he truly believed that he was invincible until it was his time to die. So the Lord, the Lord knew when he would die. The Lord knew when his time was appointed. And until then, not that you should test the Lord your God. I'm not going to step off the Temple Mountain and, hey, God, you know, save me here. But, but he truly believed that he was invincible until it was his time to die. And he lived in many respects his life that way. I think that's another way to look at this. We do what we can. We do our duty and leave the results, the consequences of that to God. I think Peter's found that here, having done that. And we transition to power, uh, the power of God being illustrated and the power of prayer being illustrated. Verse 7, Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him. That's Peter. And a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side. We talked about the fact that he's sound asleep. An angel of the Lord shows up in prison, and he had to shake Peter to wake him up. And raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street. And immediately the angel departed from him. So first of all, this isn't the first time that, that uh, people were miraculously re- released from prison in Acts. After chapter 5, we did, we did see that happen as well. But try to imagine, if you can, I I certainly did as I was studying this, this scene, being Peter in this scene. You're sleeping, chained between two guards, and you're shaken awake. 
and there's someone in the prison cell. And we don't know, well, it does, it does actually talk about um, a light shining in the prison, but we don't know exactly how much glory that angel was showing. We don't know what he looked like. But it doesn't matter if there was just another man in the room. You're shaken awake and there's someone else in your prison cell besides the two guards that are there, that's, and it's not another guard. That in and of itself would be somewhat surprising and shocking. And if that person says, get up, put your sandals on, and you stand up, and you're shackled, and you stand up and they just fall off. And the two guards, which we don't know if they were sleeping, most likely they were sleeping or not aware of what was going on, and they didn't wake up when these shackles fell to the ground. So I can understand, first of all, why Peter thought this was a dream, because none of it made sense. And the angel says, get up, put your clothes on, put your sandals on, and follow me, and doors just open. And the, the door to the city would not have been an insignificant gate or door. And no one was there to open it, and it opened of its own accord. Just try and imagine any of that. And then <laughs> this angel, this being, this man who was leading you out of prison now disappears after all is said and done. I'd imagine for Peter, who felt like he was sleepwalking and kind of just comes to outside the city gates, looks around and realizes, I'm in Jerusalem proper now. Gates open behind me, I'm out. And I'm awake. This is real. This really happened. I'm going to get out of here. <laughs> so, so he goes to the, the house of John Mark's mother, who John Mark was more than likely uh, one of the eyewitnesses of this account, who Luke would have talked to in his journeys to get all the particulars of this story. So he goes to John Mark's mother's house where the believers were gathered. But before we get into that part uh, a little bit, I did want to talk about not just the power of God, because the power of God is illustrated and evident here, but the power of prayer. I think God's interaction is often in conjunction with prayer, powerful prayer of, of saints. Prayer is a powerful tool that we often, I think, don't choose to use. And I think God acting in prayer, fervent prayer, are often tied intrinsically. There is a connection there. Not to say that the Lord Jesus Christ and God is not, he's not inhibited. He's not forced to act in the way that we pray by our prayers. That's not the relationship here. Uh, nor is he tied, excuse me, inhibited, uh, has to wait. His power is not, not, um, not I'm <laughs> coming up the word I want here. But he doesn't have to wait, I guess is the way I'm trying to say, for us to pray in order to act. God's power is absolute. He, is, he has complete authority. Um, but they are intrinsically tied. And, and, and my dad and I were talking about this the other day a little bit. I think if you think about this loop a little too much, it might drive you a little crazy. Because one of the things, we're often, we're often led by the Holy Spirit to pray. And uh, we talk about First Thessalonians, that passage in First Thessalonians, to pray without ceasing. One of the things it says, too, is quench not the Spirit. If you feel led to pray, we need to pray. Uh, but the Lord leads us to pray and then acts based off of that prayer. And again, not necessarily in the way we want. But it, to, to say that prayer is powerful is not an incorrect statement. And I think that the prayer, the fervent prayer of the saints here was, was an element, uh, a very strong element to the Lord acting as powerful as he did in this, this, this passage here. He sent an angel to miraculously re release Peter from prison. But let's turn to the saints' response to an answer to their prayer. So Peter, when he's released from prison, the first thing he does, as we said, was go, goes to the house of John Mark's mother where the saints are gathered, and he knocks on the door. 
And they're in the upper room praying fervently for whatever they were praying for. But more than likely, one of the elements of that was the release of Peter. And Rhoda, a servant girl, goes down to answer the door. Hey, it's Peter. Let me in. And Rhoda, this is kind of actually a funny story. Rhoda gets so excited that she doesn't open the door. She goes, she knows they're praying in the upper room for, for Peter. And now Peter's here. He shows up. So she gets so excited, she wants to run up and tell them, Peter's here. Peter's at the door. And the saint's response to that was, no. No, it can't be. That's not, that's, that's Peter's angel. They actually probably didn't believe her at all first. But Rhoda is insistent. Peter is at the door. I heard his voice. I know it's Peter. Well, it must be his angel. And finally, Rhoda convinces them. But this takes a while, probably a little while. There's an interaction here. And the whole time, Peter's still at the door. Rhoda never let, let him in. I, I just I found this story a little humorous. But verse 16, now Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, the saints' response to the answer to their prayer was they were astonished. And I think that for me personally, my own experience, I, I think I'm often astonished, surprised when my prayer is answered. How often do we as saints pray and receive an answer and are surprised by that answer? Or sometimes we pray with the expectation that it would be answered a specific way and the Lord doesn't answer it that way. And we could be surprised by that. Again, we don't know exactly what they were praying. They may have just been praying that Peter would die well and then Peter shows up at their door. Again, prayer being a powerful tool, I think we... We do, we should pray with the expectation that the Lord will answer, just not necessarily that the Lord will answer a specific way, how we want. But they were, they were surprised by that response. And Peter, <clears throat> Peter comes back to the church, verse 17, but motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them what just happened. Declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, go, tell these things to James and to the brethren. This is different, James. Uh, and he departed and went to another place. So now Peter's left, left the church in Jerusalem. And imagine being at the tail end of this portion of, of Acts chapter 12. Imagine being the, the soldiers. <laughs> those poor, those poor men. Waking up the next morning, you're, you're detailed to guard this prisoner. And that's all you have. You've got one man that you're responsible for. He was in chains when you went to sleep, in between two of them. The doors were shut, and you wake up, and the, to, to, to the two in the room, you look at the other guy, and you look in between you. There's no explanation for any of this. The doors of the prison are wide open, and Herod does what most, most kings would do in this situation. You go and you question the guards. He was not happy or satisfied with the answer because he did intend to take Peter and, and kill him, and now Peter's not here. And so he kills him, takes the guards out and executes the guards in the place of just an amazing, amazing story, uh, and this isn't just a story. This is a real. This, is re- this really happened. This is an amazing uh, record of an amazing plan or amazing act in Acts, where the power of God and the power of prayer were both described here. And then we transition to a small insight. Now, I, I love the fact that Luke was the one that recorded this passage because one of the things that Luke does is he inserts things uh, verifiable outside of the Bible itself, verifiable historical. Facts. When he records the story of Jesus' birth, 
he records the fact that there was a census taken in the Roman Empire at the time. That just puts a time stamp on this that you can go and you can go outside the scriptures and verify this this happened. We we can look at uh, the record of Josephus, who was a, a, a historian of the time, but there are verifiable facts that he puts into into his book. Again, inspired by the, the Holy Spirit to to write, and that's one of the things I think that that verses twenty through twenty four is is it a it's a record of of what God thinks of pride and elevating yourself to his level. But it also, it's, it's, this is a verifiable historical fact. We know from other historical records when Herod died. And so we now have a timestamp right here in, this, in Acts chapter 12 of when this approximately happened. But what did happen here is, is Herod was angry. Well, he, moved, he went to Caesarea Philippi, which was the seat of his, his um, little, little empire. And he was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, which this is again in modern-day Lebanon. And they were economically dependent upon Judea at the time, that, that's part of the, the world that Herod was in charge of. And they got in good with, with Herod's, Herod's uh, chamberlain, his personal aide, and, and uh, made him their friend and, and got an audience with Herod. And when they came before him, they flattered him when Herod spoke. And they said, verse 22, And the people kept shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. And Herod accepted that. He accepted. He didn't correct them. He didn't seek to do it. He accepted that worship and that adoration, whether it was false or not, which it probably in the context of the story wasn't necessarily genuine. They were flattering him, but he didn't correct them. Pride. This is pride. And we know pride from, from the Proverbs goes before destruction. This passage of Scripture illustrates what happens when we take glory that is due to God for ourselves. We do not ascribe the glory that is due his name to him. And I think there are other Old Testament examples we can pull. Read Isaiah 14. One of the, one of the ultimate examples of pride would be Satan himself, who was a, a beautiful, beautiful angel and then sought to elevate himself into the same level as God, who was his creator. And we see that he was cast out of heaven and took a third of the angels with him. You look at the Tower of Babel. That's a, that's a great illustration of, of what happens when man's pride causes him to essentially try to overshadow God's power, God's authority. And all he had to do was go down and you guys don't, you can't talk to each other anymore. They wanted to build a tower unto heaven. And God said, not going to happen. Uh, Haman was an, another example of, of what pride often leads to. Uh, Haman was uh, this, one of the, the, I think the second in command, if I recall correctly. This is in the time of Esther. And couldn't stand the fact that Mordecai wouldn't bow to him. And that just ate at him. And so he came up with this big plan. That, nah, I'm not just going to get rid of Haman. I'm going to get rid of all the Jews. But I'm specifically going to hang him. Because he has offended my pride. And that, that turned right back around on him, didn't it? He got hung on the very gallows that he had erected to, to, to hang Haman on. Nebuchadnezzar is a great example, too. Nebuchadnezzar and the pride that he had, and God humbled him. He, he, he um, wandered around like a wild animal. He used to be the greatest king, and then God restored him in this particular instance. But in this, this particular passage of Scripture, that doesn't happen. There's no restoration here. Herod is struck 
down by God. And I think it's good to contrast Paul and Barnabas' response in Acts chapter 15. I don't want to jump too far into somebody else's message, but Acts chapter 15, uh, just to give you a little bit of the, the story, Paul and Barnabas in Ephesus were labeled as gods. If I remember correctly, it was uh, Jupiter and... It doesn't matter. They were... They were Mars. Were, were named as, as gods. These men are gods. And Paul and Barnabas... We're freaked out. No, they didn't want to be even on the same level. This isn't the intent. We're not saying that we are, we are gods ourselves. We are preaching to you about the one true God. We don't want that glory. We don't want that. We don't want to be even anywhere near the same level as God. Don't do that. Herod didn't do that. Herod took that, that adoration and that, that uh, worship and was struck dead. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he had not given glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. And I think even though it's one verse in Luke chapter 12, verse 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied, I think that is a huge, huge... That's, to me, the crux of this passage. It's one of the main messages of the book of Acts. But it's an important one here. It's got one verse in Acts chapter 12, but I think it is, again, the crux of this passage, the proliferation of the gospel. That is, I think, the overarching theme of the book of Acts. But the word of God, in spite of the persecution that the church just experienced, in spite of James being killed, in spite of Peter being imprisoned and forced to flee, the word of of God grew and multiplied. And brothers and sisters, we are, we are benefactors of that, that it didn't, the church didn't just stay in Jerusalem, didn't just stay in Judea, didn't just stay with the people of God, his chosen people, the Jews. But God opened up uh, his family and included the Gentiles. And again, used persecu- things like persecution to make sure that the, the church would spread. You stamp on uh, something that, like, like water, oil, it's going to spread. It's not, you can't stamp it out. And that's what, that's what God used persecution to do, to spread the word of God. And, and again, I think that this is a very important verse in verse 12, but the word of God grew and multiplied. And we'll see that as we move forward from Acts chapter 12, that the word does spread. It does spread throughout Asia Minor. It does spread throughout Greece. It does spread to Rome and beyond. We today in America, the church in America, are benefactors of the work of these men and women as they, they sought to spread the gospel. And verse 25, I think this is a portent of things to come. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So they came to Jerusalem from Antioch, uh, took John Mark with them, and then went back out, you'll see, uh, to, to spread the gospel to the churches in Ephesus actually Greece, Asia Minor, and ultimately uh, to Rome. You see a transition here. Peter, who was a big part of the first 12 chapters of, of Acts, now takes a back seat. It, he doesn't disappear. Uh, we'll see him again. Um, but he's, he's not at the forefront anymore. Paul, a uh, missionary, takes center stage in, in the book of Acts. And, and the church in Jerusalem, again, kind of takes a back seat. Now we focus on the churches outside, uh, corresponding to the epistles 
in these letters uh, that uh, we, we can take so much doctrine, uh, doctrinal truth and, and, and encouragement from. So Acts chapter 12 being a transitionary passage, is not, we're now going to transition to the spread of the gospel outside of Judea. So some things I think we can take away from this, this passage of Scripture. One is persecution. We can't expect it. We should expect it, I think. Um, difficulty. Our life is not, we weren't promised a cakewalk. The Christian life was not, is not uh, necessarily a cakewalk or something that we should expect. Uh, Perfection, wealth, uh, all good things, that's not what we're promised. We're promised something in heaven. We're promised eternal life with Jesus Christ. Uh, We're promised a lot of things here on earth, but not necessarily just good things physically for us. But I think that in times of trouble, in all times, really, we should pray and understand that, that prayer is a powerful, powerful tool that we have. Um, it's our opportunity to come and talk to our Lord and Savior and, and our Heavenly Father, which I think is, is just such a wonderful thing. Again, going back to the Old Testament when the people had to wait once a year for the, the one priest to go into the Holy of Holies. We're not limited by that. We have access directly to the throne of grace. And I can tell you, brothers and sisters, I I underutilize that. I underutilize that. But I think we should should just remember that that God is powerful. Prayer is powerful. Uh, And then the word of God growing and multiplying. We're part of that, or we should be part of that, spreading the gospel. And I think it's an encouragement to us to to go forth and and to look to witness to others through many different different ways. That could be just tracks. I went to, to... Brunch with a brother recently, and and watched uh, watched him talk and witness to the the people that were were serving us food uh, using tracks, and I think that's that's a wonderful thing, and and it's good to look for opportunities like that to spread the gospel, to proliferate uh, the gospel of Christ. So let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity once again to come open your Word uh, to study it. And, and uh, to learn from it, Lord, we thank you for we thank you for prayer, the ability that we have to come together and to pray, Lord. And we pray that we would use that on time, in good times and in bad, um, and pray without ceasing, Lord. And at least in the mentality of of constantly talking to you, our heavenly Father, uh, casting our cares on you in times of trouble, in times of difficulty, in times of anxiety. And always looking to turn to you, Lord. We pray that um, you would help us look for opportunities to share the gospel with others, Lord, and to to be a part of that spreading of of your word, especially, again, in times like this, Lord, in times of trouble, in times of uncertainty. People are looking for something. They're looking for an answer, Lord. And I pray that we wouldn't necessarily waste this opportunity that we even have today when we ourselves may be anxious, Lord, to, to always look to you, and to look to share you with others, Lord. Once again, we thank you for this opportunity to open your word. We pray that uh, we were blessed by that this morning, Lord, that uh, we would take lessons from this, and, and as we go forth, Lord, that you would, um, you would work through your word in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.